0: My phone rang, and my colleague said to me, Have have you heard about the nail bombing? And I just thought, This is a wind up, you know, we're in Exeter. And then he had to say to me, Martin, there's been a nail bomb detonated in the Giraffe restaurant.
1: On Thursday, May 22nd, 2008, 22 year old Nikki Riley walked into the Giraffe restaurant in Exeter and attempted to kill and injure the people inside by detonating a bomb. His suicide attack failed and the only person he injured was himself. But his actions that day caused panic and an unprecedented response from Devon and Cornwall's emergency services. Nobody had really imagined that such an event could take place in the relatively quiet cathedral city in the southwest of England. Over the succeeding days, weeks and months A major counter-terrorism investigation was launched and further details about Riley and his troubled background emerged. There were more arrests, prosecutions and trials, and finally the death of Riley while serving time in jail for attempted murder. Ten years on since the explosion, we'll relive the events of that day by talking to some of the people involved and explain the subsequent police investigation sat in the restaurant just feet from where the bomb went off was local musician chris moynan speaking from where he now lives in austin texas usa chris describes the dramatic moments of that day
2: so i was just about to go on tour with my band i played in a a punk band that was based next to back in the day and it was the day that we're about to go on tour um i was going out for a meal with my then girlfriend and so we go there, we're sitting down, we make our order. We are waiting for our food, probably about 10 minutes later. Here's a pretty loud bang. And I kind of look over my shoulder and I thought, initially I thought someone had dropped a stack of plates in the kitchen um, because you heard this kind of ceramic crash. But that you know, it was like a loud percussive bang. And then Everyone kind of looked around and looked a bit perturbed and, and, you know, nothing kind of really came of it. And then we had the second one. That's when, um, I think people started to feel like something weird was going on. I, rem- I remember there was a, a family group sitting at one of the tables right by the restroom where the where Nikki was that looked very kind of, you know, upset at what was going on, you know, a bit confused and uh, just looked a bit unsure what was going on. Um... And then the third bang went off, and I think that's when everyone decided that it was time to get out because, <laughs> you know, we did not know what was going on. I think also you could start to see some of the liquid from one of the devices seeping out from under the door, and I'm not sure whether that was from the device or from the sink, which probably got broken. But that was I think that was the time where everyone decided, like, right, everyone's getting out. Police arrived pretty quickly. They were probably there within a couple of minutes know what was going on just kind of being you know gawpers and just kind of stood there waiting to see what was going on and eventually the police went in and you know they were in there for quite a while and then they pulled this guy out and he's, you know bloodied face and clothing was ripped and stuff and you think like what the hell is going on and then that's when they started to kind of push everyone back and um establish a perimeter around the building and then, you know, the perimeter kept getting pushed further and further back. And at this point, it was kind of trying to figure out what was going on. And, and we kind of went home and turned on the news. And then, it, you know, we saw that it was a, an attempted bombing, which was very kind of sobering, knowing that we were right there when, you know, when it actually happened. But obviously, I was about to go on tour with my band, so I had to kind of get myself together and go and get You know, my my bag's packed and meet up with the rest of the guys so we can kind of get going. It was the first time I've ever driven through Exeter and seen armed police out and about. I think that was when I realised how real it was. I I don't think it really hit me until a few months later when there was a TV show about homegrown terrorism. It was about, you know, radicalised people in, in the UK. And they had a, a big section about Nicky Ryan. And, and it was the first time where it really hit me. And I remember watching the TV show and, and seeing the, the security camera footage where I could clearly see myself. And it, it kind of really hit home thick and fast. And I think it was the first time I really felt any kind of emotional, like severe emotional kind of response to it. Because they had photos of the, the device that he tried to detonate. There was photos of the inside the restroom after he'd been in there. You know, at the end of the day, I'm we unbelievably lucky that he wasn't fully prepared. But just the idea of this autistic kid walking into a, a busy restaurant with a, a bomb in his backpack just seems. You know, just it, it's very hard to kind of understand why. I, I guess i you know I never really understand why he wanted to do it and what you know what the motive was, other than being encouraged to via message boards and stuff online. It's just very sad that he was singled out by some kind of, you know, extremist via the internet and saw someone that was vulnerable and decided to prey on that. I think that's the saddest aspect of it. I feel sorry for the kids. But yeah, to be honest, I just think the whole thing is a bit sad that someone so young tried to do something so unspeakable and he ended up
1: dying in prison, which is not really the sort of thing you wish on anyone. It was those vulnerabilities that saw a peaceful young boy turned into a potential killer. Back in 2008, little was known about the risks of radicalisation faced by those who are on the autistic spectrum. But new research now suggests that those with traits of autism spectrum disorder could be at more risk of being radicalised. In the lead-up to the failed bombing, Riley could be found poring over the Koran at the Islamic Cultural and Community Centre in Plymouth almost every day. Friends said that as a boy he tended to retreat into a fantasy world. He was obsessed with James Bond and would imagine himself as a super spy. After converting to Islam, he would spend hours studying the religion. Some locals claim that he became obsessed with his September 11th attacks and he would watch the footage constantly. Others say he was fascinated with hostage beheadings. Special branch officers were monitoring a group of alleged radicals in Plymouth. Early investigations suggested comparisons with an Al-Qaeda-inspired attack but not one necessarily directed by a senior figure. It was claimed that Riley was brainwashed by men who would meet at a local internet cafe, kebab shop and outside a fish and chip shop. Two people were arrested in the aftermath of the attack, but neither were charged. Riley always claimed that he worked alone. On the day of the attack in Exeter, Riley went to a cafe in Old Town Street in Plymouth City Centre. He is said to have received a text message of encouragement before jumping on a bus and heading for his target. Riley took the device made of glass bottles packed with chemicals into the Jaff restaurant, but he was the only person injured when he accidentally set off one of the bombs in the toilets. Riley was groomed by extremists online and became known as Muhammad Rashid Sal-Aim after converting to Islam. He had intended to run out into the packed dining area holding three bottles filled with caustic soda, kerosene and nails to his stomach. During the trial at the Old Bailey, Riley was described as the least cunning person ever to have been charged with terrorism, injuring only himself. The explosion sent dozens of restaurant customers fleeing in panic, and the bomber staggered out, suffering serious injuries. Riley pleaded guilty to attempted murder and preparing an act of terrorism, and in 2009, he was jailed for life with a minimum of 18 years. The incident sparked a huge police response leading to a major investigation. Devon and Cornwall Police, Detective Sergeant Martin South was called to the scene when the bomb went off and managed the subsequent investigation.
0: Uh, I was in Exeter, I was traveling from the meeting place to the Royal Devon and Exeter where my father was critically ill in hospital with cancer. And um, my phone rang, my hand-free kit went off whilst I was driving and My colleague said to me, um, have you heard about the nail bombing? And I just thought, this is a wind-up. You know, we're in Exeter. And he went, look, do you know about this nail bombing or not? And and there was a little bit of confusion, because I actually thought he was taking the nick. He obviously thought, I might have known something about it. And then he had to say to me, Martin, there's been a nail bomb detonated in the giraffe restaurant. And there was a little bit of a pause. And then I said, "Okay, I don't know where it is. Where is it? So he gave me directions to it. And I said, right, I will make to the scene. Please tell comms. Um, that's what I'm going to do. And I sat there in the, in the traffic uh, at a traffic light thinking, hmm, do I need to blue light through this? I, I think I'm going to have to just find my way through the traffic from where I am. And I was no more than sort of a mile and a half away. And then all of a sudden, a number of unmarked silver BMWs with lights and music just came down the wrong side of the road through the uh, through the red traffic lights and off they went. And I thought, hmm, I guess this is a bit more serious than perhaps uh, I thought I need to blue light it. So I then joined the convoy. So my first role when I arrive is to liaise with the duty uh, inspector who is the um, silver commander. I identify myself and then discuss with him the cordons this is what i want you need to listen to me sir so your cordons are not big enough i need the cordons expanded so we ended up with the cordons coming to the the correct sort of distances and we are all taught through this um several procedures that we need to do uh, which include making the area safe that we are in because that's that's primarily important for secondary devices and we go through a you know, whole raft of things but the bottom line is uh, our experts, so the bomb disposal team, which are the Royal Navy clearance divers from Plymouth, HMS Drake, will not enter the cordon until we declare the cordon safe. We then set about making the scene safe, doing searches of the bins, just to make sure there's no secondary devices. I then designated my location as the rendezvous point, and other additional staff came to me, uh, and then it's about the management of the scene to make sure that we uh, are protecting the scene protecting the people, protecting our officers because our our suspect was covered in a white chemical a white powdered chemical so my first thought is this a chemical, biological, radioactive or nuclear incident Uh, at that stage we were aware that the only person injured was Mickey Riley we were aware that Uh, there was glass. So whatever the container used to withhold the device was glass. Uh, And and there were nail fragments, um, and the first officer said that the toilet was a bloodbath, but there was lots of nails and glass all over the place and a couple of bits of plastic. Um, So we knew the device was contained within glass. We didn't know what the timing power unit to it was, we don't know what the initiator was so these are questions that we can't answer without going into the scene but of course we have to make the scene safe so there's no tinkering there's no quick looks the the first officers on the scene they gave us the information they could give us but we then have to shut down the scene and of course wait for the bomb disposal And, and the Royal Navy clearance divers Um, turned up very, very rapidly. The scene had been made safe, they turn up, and then of course, I'm back at the scene, and we then have a discussion about the best way of a uh, forensic harvest from the scene. And we had a brilliant uh, conversation about what can we do to preserve the best amount of forensic evidence for you whilst making it safe. So there was a rucksack within the toilet and the rucksack was sealed. There was all the fragmentation. So Johnny Ramshaw then put on the, the big Nomex suit, the big helmet and the, the, the blast proof, and then took an x-ray device in there with him. X-rayed the bag and we could see that there was um, more bottles in, inside the bag, but there didn't appear to be uh, an initiator with them. So there is a method of initiating them but we couldn't understand what they were so there were no wires to a battery or anything like that but there appeared to be three bottles strapped together with lids on and no apparent mechanism to detonate so once we know that whatever we've got left isn't likely to go off the bomb disposal officer went in with one of our uh, police cameras and despite wearing all that big heavy thick Gloves and clothing, he was able to take a series of photographs approaching the scene, into the scene, which were invaluable. The bag is opened up and there are photographs taken of the contents as best as possible. And we could see then that there was a plastic tub with what looked like sheets ripped and tied together and the three bottles were just there with the caps on. We now know that the three bottles were in fact an accelerant And in the plastic tub were the fuses that were going to be inserted into the three bottles, lit, and then thrown. The intention was to place the the three nail bombs that he had on the tables in the restaurant and injure
3: people.
1: Within minutes of the device going off, news had started to spread of an explosion in Princess Hay's shopping centre. Exeter's then daily newspaper, The Express and Echo, was the first news organisation to have a reporter at the scene and the story soon hit national and international headlines. The paper's editor at the time, Mark Astley, described the events of that day.
4: I remember taking a a call on my mobile from a a contact of mine who was in Exeter and he said that there'd been something, some activity around the giraffe restaurant, something had clearly happened, not sure what, but we ought to look into it and I remember dispatching just one reporter and, and one photographer to go and have a look. We were on Southon back then, so the journey into Exeter took about 25 minutes with, with traffic. And by the time they got there, it had already developed into something more significant. They, were, they reported back that there were several police vehicles, that a large cordon was being set up, not just around Giraffe, but in the surrounding streets. Other emergency vehicles were on the scene as well. And at that point, you just, you just knew something significant had happened we had a very good crime reporter at the time and and she began putting calls into her her contacts and picking up information off the record which is very useful because it helps you steer the direction of the story you know even if you even if you know things you can't publish it helps you in terms of the tone and the presentation of the story And, and very very early on probably within about three or four hours of us first arriving at the scene the crime reporter was told this is a bomb we believe, um, it could be related, and we believe it could be terrorist-related, and we believe it could involve a local person, i.e. somebody from Devon.
1: Behind the shock and horror of an attempted bomb attack was a vulnerable young man who had been suffering with mental health problems for all of his life. Having been handed a lengthy prison sentence... Nicky Riley was found dead in his cell at Manchester's Strange Ways Prison on October the 19th, 2016. It is believed that he was found hanging. Less than a year after the attack, the Plymouth Herald's crime correspondent, Carl Lee spoke to Nikki's mother, Kim Riley, to find out more about what he was like as a boy and the problems he faced. Ten years on, we can now revisit that emotional interview to provide an insight into Nicky's life growing up and what impact the incident had on his family?
5: When he was younger, I mean, he was like it was normal as a baby and a toddler. Although he, I know toddlers get tantrums, yeah. but Nikki's tantrums—some of them were really quite bad, like and like waking up in the middle of the night with tantrums and everything. But it wasn't until he started primary school and. They picked up that he had learning difficulties and things like that, which I didn't see as too much as a problem, there's lots of kids that's got Uh that. Um, And then I got him a statement, well, me and the school managed to get him a statement at primary school. But he was always, like, um, very clumsy. Um, And what you say to him, he would take literally, Uh you know? We don't mean it, but he took it literally, some of the things. Between the age of 12 and 16, more like 15, 16, Nicky started becoming very obsessive. There was lots of things. I don't know if it was like adolescence brings it out more. I'm not sure. But something brought this illness out in Nikki, triggered it oh, really bad. And um, he started self-harming, obsessing, obsessities, he was becoming so obsessive and that wasn't that was with everything he done.
3: How did he go from there and just suddenly sidestep to a religion? As
5: he got older <clears throat> I mean like he grew up with all the kids on the estate. Yeah. But as he got older he didn't choose to um like
3: didn't choose to hang around with them anymore. Hang
5: around yeah. with them no more. Um so he became a bit of a loner. He had some close friends from school, which used to pop in and see him, and they used to go out. He used to go to their house, and, like, his friend, who was one in particular, he used to come to my house, and, like, they used to do things together and so
3: everything. that's 16, 17, 18, this point, no. but, this Well, he sort
5: of like lost contact with him after they left school.
3: Because, obviously, this is when he went off to, um, yeah. to Minehead.
5: Yeah. Um... He became a bit of a loner, and he was still, like, worrying and anxious and everything. And I suppose it will take its toll on him, don't want to mix with, like,
3: people. Because he had lost all his friends in one go. Yeah, game. and... When and you leave school, and that's the end of it.
5: And he, because of being in mine hat, at that time, is when he was due to leave school, and that was one of his... He
3: missed Yeah. He said he missed the end of school.
5: Yeah.
3: Yeah, what did he say when he talked about it? He just,
5: oh, you know, it, it was like a regret.
3: Yeah.
5: Even, like, up until he'd done what he'd done, he used to still say... It was, did
3: he even talk about it then?
5: Yeah. That was one of his biggest regrets.
3: He wished he'd been at school for the... He three? wishes he
5: was back <laughs> at school and misses, <laughs> He missed all the friends and everything. The thing is, with Nicky, he could have gone to any... He could have gone... Got into Buddhism, Christianity, mm-hmm. anything and whatever person told him anything about it, he would be taken in mm. and he'd take it on board that that is the truth. I only wish that he did get into Buddhism, at least it would have been a, a peaceful religion. It wouldn't have, had, religion, wouldn't would have
3: been it? a religion that could have had elements of...
5: Because medicine. Nicky, um, he's always been um, a very moral person. Mm. And like he's never been criminally minded, he's always, um, he's never brought me any trouble, like, never asked for anything extreme or. Never
3: demanded things of you.
5: No, he's always been, um, he's always been really grateful.
3: So you, you, you're not really sure where he started getting this the religious influence? Do you don't no. know where it came from? No. He, just, he started just bringing things, he was out being a, a grown up coming back with different things, whether it's a love of the scenery or mm. something else, and then suddenly he started coming back with...
5: Yeah, it was about that he wanted to go to a mosque. And to be honest, I didn't understand... Well, didn't
3: click? You obviously, that no, wouldn't necessarily alert you, would it?
5: No, I don't understand, well, I mean, I understand a bit more than what I did back then, but I don't understand a lot about the um, Muslim and Islamic faith, and I didn't really want to. Mm. It Didn't, didn't appeal? No. But I didn't, I never ever thought that Nicky was in any danger,
3: Mm.
5: or being used as he has been. Because someone uh, has taken Nicky uh, under his wing, and because Nicky is um, so loyal to a friend and so naïve and so vulnerable, mm. this all... Sta- I mean, you could sit with Nicky for five minutes and you would see what sort of person he is. You would have him worked out. You, well, the vulnerability stands out a Mayo, yeah. and the naivety, it all stands out. And someone has taken him under his wing, planted the seed of all these extremist ex- views, nurtured it, set him on the right path, and slowly fell back into the background themselves. And in that moment of madness that day, it's just ruined his whole life. And he's got all the scars now to prove, to prove it.
3: What did you feel when the police came to your door? I didn't,
5: I had a phone call. I had a phone call about to, do you know, I, I had to lay down that day, I, Nikki, Nicky went out in the morning, but I, I knew he was going out because I got up for my son, Elliot, for school. And Nicky was up as well, which was a bit unusual because it's quite early. And um, I had a feeling he wanted to go out because I had to nip into town. I asked him if he wanted to come into town with me. Although I wasn't planning on staying in town. I just had to go to a one shop and come home. I didn't want to stay in town. Mm. And then he said, yeah, and then he said no. So I left it at that, really. I didn't think... There was nothing, like, suspicious or anything about that morning.
3: Mm, it's never normal.
5: Yeah. Cos he is so, like, indecisive about things, anyway. So I went to town, and I come out of the card shop, and I bumped into Nicky, and he had the rucksack on his back. But that's nothing odd, because... He often did. He always did have the rucksack mm. on his back. And I said, where are you going? And he said, oh, I'm going to meet my friend for a coffee, which isn't out of the ordinary, either, cos that's what he does. And um, I went home and I had to lay down. And you know, I had, I don't know if it's a premonition, but I woke out of my sleep with oh, all, I, I don't know whether it was a dream, I had all marks over my body and I got up. Mm-hmm. It just woke me out of my sleep, I had all marks on me and it's was like, That was oh, a dream, you had
3: a dream where
5: you no, had it? Just, yeah, I had a dream, but it woke me up. And it was all, like, marks on my arm. Nightmare. Yeah. Mm. And I got up, I got up, and then thought, oh, better get on with what I've got to do. And then I thought, oh, I'll phone Nicky in a minute, because he was still out. Mm. And although he's got a key to my front door, he hasn't got a key to the block, and because it was coming to time to go to meet Elliot, I thought, better give him a ring, because he won't be able to get in the block and be locked outside with, like, Mm. people hanging around and gets anxious again, so... (laughs) I was just about to phone him, and I had a phone call from Exeter General Hospital. Yeah. But I didn't click right away, because sometimes Nikki's hospital appointments come sort of like via that. Yeah. And then um, she said, um, I'm a doctor, I've got his son. I thought, oh my God. What's he doing? Well, that I happened? thought he's had a panic attack. He's yeah. fainted, because just prior to him doing this, he was getting a lot of blackouts. He was fainting quite a lot, so mm. I thought, oh my God, he's fainted. And then she okay. said, um... No, nicky has been seriously burnt by an explosive device, and I thought, oh my God, it's, it's a firework! I didn't, you know, I didn't know what to think. And um, I said, oh, I'll, will get there, I'll get there as soon as I can. I had to get my dad in, I had to make arrangements for Elliot he to be picked up from school. And she said, oh, before you set off, phone me back. So I phoned her back. She said he's being restricted by police. And the police come on the phone and I said, I'm, I'm just setting off now and they said I couldn't. Mm. I couldn't go. And happened. I couldn't go and, you know, I was worried because the doctor said, at that time, because of his injuries, the burns, mm. that they weren't sure if they would have to transfer him to the franchise Hospital in Bristol for, for, bands, for yeah. bands. And I said, oh my gosh, you know, and no one was telling me anything. I mean, I spoke to the policeman because he said you're going to have to wait for the police to come to your home. Well, I waited from two till six o'clock.
3: Oh, lies! you were stuck oh, at, home, stuck at
5: I... home waiting.
3: At what point did you learn what had happened, or did you not? You still weren't aware of it.
5: It was. It came off. I think it came off on telly. The Something about Exeter. Did you click? Yeah. Oh. He, well, clicked. Well, I don't know if clicked. See, wow, I didn't know what to make of it. I I just didn't know what to make. Mm. And they were saying about a bomb and I thought, no way. And when they say bombs, you think of like the black ones on the cartoons and everything I didn't think of, I mean, I didn't know about liquid bombs till a while after.
3: Mm.
5: And I thought, well, no way, Nicky's, you know, no no way. Somewhere, he's gone somewhere and someone's given that to him. It was, oh, questions going over and over, you know, and within 20 minutes. Oh, God. I, you know, I I knew that the police, I thought they were just going to come in and search my house, but me stay there. Mm. I had no idea. It was just crazy. Guns at me, at my front door. You know, I was stood there, telling oh. them to come in. I put my dog, uh, locked the dog away, come in. And, no, get out was get out, I was dragged downstairs. well, I don 't know if I was dragged i I, was, I went down the stairs with a local policeman. He, he took me down to his car, but I think I was feeling my legs were going, and it was whether he was pulling me up or <laughs> I don't know, but I know to like some of my friends like, seeing me go. It looked like they were dragging me, but I don 't think that was the case. And, of course, Elliot seen it.
3: Oh, no, Elliot was at the house though.
5: Elliot was outside and all these pl- the police jumped out of the vans with guns and, like, Elliot's seen me being taken off and he d- he'd never had a clue He's about been... anything. I have not told him anything. He's only,
3: what, 7, 8?
5: No, he was 10 at the time. He was 10 and yeah. he was screaming and crying. So he'd come oh. with me in the car. But I thought I was going home again, but I was just taken out of flimmer. They, they it was just Europe. like, oh God! It, I, I just want—I can remember, like I had all the um, police with me, like the ones that have been brought in who are now my liaison
3: officer. Yeah,
5: yeah. i, I, I do you know, I couldn't get my head around any of it, any of it at all. None of it. I just wanted to die. I did. I wanted to die that night and the next night
3: just because of the world of it all or what what you thought Nicky might have done or what had happened to Nicky or...
5: Yeah, all of it, all of it. everything was going over and over in my head. Like, because I I knew then, I mean, because I didn't sleep that night and I was in a hotel room watching um, the news channel. I knew what he had done. Well, I knew there had been a, an explosion in Exeter and that Nicky had been arrested for it. But it was like, well, Nicky couldn't have made that. Nicky someone must have give it to him and I was worried about him because that night he had an operation on his eye and the following day he had op- operation on his um, arm and I was just it was the whole thing and I was like I had my mum and dad with me at the hotel and I was just thinking you know put them through it you know and they're getting on you know it was awful no, it shouldn't be happening Day. Do you know, I can't make sense of it all. I look at Nicky's phone and I just think, oh, why? Why? I don't think I'll ever make sense of any of this. I look at my son and he's... I know people reading the paper and what he's done. They might think he deserves to be in prison, but he doesn't know but he needs, he needs to help. Yeah. If you know him, it, it just shouldn't have, shouldn't have been Nicky, but it's because of his vulnerability that he's done, done this. But anyone who knows Nicky properly, I think it's a shock. No-one can get her, you know over the shock of it all. It just doesn't make sense. I sit there looking at his photo and... Oh, Nicky, you're so silly to yourself. What have you done?
1: Ten years later, some closure to this sad and disturbing case could be granted when the delayed inquest into Nicky Riley's death is held. The streets of Exeter haven't witnessed an incident of terrorism since and it is hoped that this unusual and shocking incident is never repeated. But one thing that is for sure, is for those caught up in the attempted giraffe restaurant bombing on the 22nd of May, 2008, it will be a long, long time until it is forgotten. Terror in Exeter, 10 years on, is a Devon Live production produced by Paul Greaves, edited by John Bishop, and narrated by me, Ron Preston Ellis.